We are going to move now to a, a, a scripture reading. And we've been reading the scriptures uh, from Philippians while we've been preaching in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And as you can see there, we're in Philippians 2 uh, right now. And Hendrick is going to come and read it for us. Hendrick. Philippians 2 from verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We are continuing our series in 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel has a sort of a mega theme of what does it look like for Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be king? How is he king here? How is he king here? And as you'll see in today's text, how is he king even in a foreign land, even when he's been uh, exiled by means of the Ark of the Covenant to the land of Philistia? Uh, the scripture reading is on the back middle panel of your bulletin. It's from 1 Samuel 5. Evelyn is going to read it for us. Evelyn. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, they set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, Behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his arms were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both in Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark, of the, Lord of, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought round to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it round, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. 
they have brought round to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. All right, we're going to spend some time considering this text together. Uh, it's, it's pretty rare in the scriptures, in the Bible, to hear a story from the perspective of a non-believer. Ever thought about that? That nearly all the stories we have in the Bible are told from the perspective of those who already believe in God. But this morning is different because this morning we have a story where no people of God are present. There are no Christians. There are no people of God in this story. Rather, God is on his own. He's exiled to a foreign land. He willingly went there because of the sin of the Israelites. He allowed his ark to be captured by the Philistines. And God exiled himself to teach his people. We talked about this last week. A hard lesson about what happens when we try to use God instead of worshiping God. And so last week, we mainly talked about how should Israel understand their great defeat? There's a great slaughter of Israelites. How should they think about it? What lessons should they take from it? But this week is precisely the opposite question because it's considered from the Philistine perspective. How should the Philistines understand their victory? They won this huge battle over their rivals to the north. What does that mean about them? Does it mean their gods were stronger? Does it mean that Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he's now on their side? Well, as you just heard read, they too learn a hard lesson that God is on no one's side. God is on God's side. He, he invites people to join his side, but he will not be used by either Israelite or Philistine. Just like Israel last week, the Philistines learned this costly lesson about who God is. We're going to take the text in two parts. The first part is God among the gods, this whole sort of fight he has with Dagon. And then part two, we'll talk about God among the Philistines. Now, if you remember last week, Israel is fighting these battles against the Philistines. They were a seafaring people. They'd settled on the coast south of Israel, modern-day Gaza Strip. Perhaps you remember this. By the way, somehow in a text that featured a massacre, the most controversial part of my sermon, the part I got the most questions about, was whether it's pronounced Philistine or Philistine. That's what everyone wanted to know uh, after the service. Well, I'll, I'll have you know, I put my best Hebrew researchers to work on this profound theological question, aka asked Frankie what he thought. And, and, and the answer is, if you've been wondering, the answer is that Philistine is closer to the original Hebrew. But it's more, it's a, it's a tomato-tomato situation. I, I, we're not offended by either pronunciation. But Israel and the Philistines, they were fighting. And the Israelites got defeated. The Philistines killed uh, the, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas. They captured the ark. If you look at verse 1, it says they take the ark from Ebenezer. That's where the battle was fought last week. And they take it to Ashdod. Ashdod is the northernmost of the five cities of Philistia. It was the closest to the battle. Makes sense. The Philistines take the ark of God. They set it up in the house of Dagon. Now Dagon, we don't know too much about. He's a regional god. The only references in antiquity we have come from this area. We, don't, uh, or we, we know that he's worshipped. He has his own house, his own temple. We don't know really what he looks like. We don't know what he was the god for. There's a little bit of evidence that suggests he was the god of like grain or of corn or something like that. But there's a lot of debate. The later verses here reveal he had hands. He had a head. He had a, he had a torso or whatever. And so he was probably somewhat human looking. But, but we just don't know. 
There's not much inside or outside the scriptures that give us any sort of clue to what kind of God he was. And the author of 1 Samuel also doesn't think it's important or we would have been, what we would have been told. What is important is he has a one-sided battle with Yahweh. But right now, he's the chief god of the Philistines. They put the Ark of God in Dagon's house beside him. Now, what, what does that mean? Why are they putting the Ark of the Covenant in his house? Well, the placement of the Ark next to Dagon, it's symbolic. It means the Philistines believed their God had triumphed over the Israelite God. The previous battle at Ebenezer, it was a God contest, and Dagon outgodded the God of Israel. The Philistine thinking was, if we can capture their God, then that God is assumed to be conquered and finished. And so if you look carefully, it says, they set up the ark beside Dagon. So if you're looking at like a wall, it's like Dagon here and the ark of God uh, over here, lining up their trophies. But verse 3, when they get up the next day and go to the temple, instead of Dagon and the ark side by side, Dagon is lying, you know, face down in front of the ark. It's a typical posture of worship and of reverence. It says the people picked Dagon up and put him back in his place. Notice that uh, Dagon can't return to his place all by himself. He must be put placed there. But then they go to bed. And then the next day they wake up early again. They go back into the temple. And Dagon is not only face down again, but his head and his hands have been cut off. Not broken off. The Hebrew is clear. They've been cut off. Now, this was a known practice in the ancient world. It's barbaric, of course, but conquerors would sometimes chop the hands and then the head off of warriors after defeating them. So Dagon's still in his place, in a, in a, on his face in a posture of worship, but he's been utterly defeated. He's, he's had his, his hands and head chopped off. And they've been placed on the threshold of the temple. See, if you think of a temple as like a holy spiritual place set aside, then the threshold, the doorway of the temple can be understood as the dividing line between uh, like the holy and the mundane or, or the sacred and the secular. Dagon is sort of being exiled from his own temple. And you can see there it leads to this custom of priests taking a large step, leaping over the threshold uh, in, in the temples. So Dagon's fully defeated. Now, what do we learn from this episode? Um, sorry, I, oh, sorry, I got, got things uh, confused there. What do we learn from this episode? First thing is this, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not one God amongst many. And even though I called this section God among the gods, I'm not trying to imply in any sense that Yahweh is one of the options. Sometimes he wins, sometimes he loses when he battles other gods. Rather, the contrast that's drawn between Yahweh and Dagon, it's laughable. And if you consider, if the purpose of 1 Samuel is, is to make the, the kingship of God obvious, then this section is intended to make the people of God who'd later be reading this, it's intended to make them kind of laugh or to chuckle. Because Dagon looks ridiculous. He can't defend himself. He can't get back into his place. He loses his hands and his head. It's this one punch or a two punch knockout. It's basically saying one of these gods has real power and one does not. Now, we, of course, live in an age of many gods, and I'm not speaking of just the major world religions with all their gods and goddesses. I'm also talking about that there are many things to which people give their best time and attention and focus. Those too are gods. There are many things to which people functionally bow down. And sometimes you'll hear something like this said, it doesn't matter what you choose to believe in as long as it makes you happy. Or it doesn't matter what you worship as long as it makes you uh, a nice person, a kind person. 
I remember when I was in university, you know, many moons ago, but having a discussion with a friend, and she had some very unique ideas about God. Didn't fit in any kind of category. They were just her own. And we were having this friendly discussion about what we believed, and I said something to the effect of, well, I find a lot of purpose and comfort in following Jesus. And she replied, I too find a lot of purpose and comfort in following my beliefs. And I remember sitting there in the library at the university, feeling confused. I didn't know what to say next. Because if we're only having an argument about whose religion makes them happier, whose religion makes them more content, then we can't ever get to resolution. Because have you ever wondered, maybe the Philistines were happy with their God? Maybe Dagon? Kind of working for them. We kind of like him. Kind of like how it goes. I don't think it's wrong to, to look to belief in God for meaning and purpose and contentment and fulfillment. I, I hope that following Jesus makes you kind. That's fine, but it's only one part of the conversation because the scriptures are clear in the, here and other places that if there is one true God, then all the other gods, big or small, are pretenders. They just aren't on the same level as Yahweh. And I'm not saying this to offend or to make fun of, of any other religions, Muslims, Hindus, New Age believers, whatever. I'm just trying to say this is historically what Christianity has taught. The scriptures make it clear that Yahweh does not simply exist alongside a whole pantheon of gods or any god you may choose to set up. He is the true God. And though in Canada, especially in Canada, we are to call to live peaceably with all people, as Christians, we must resist any effort to classify Yahweh, God of the scriptures, with all the other gods. He is not one God amongst many. He is not another way to speak of some greater divine idea. And just by the way, if you talk to sort of a sincere Muslim or Hindu or whatever, they will make this exact same argument, but in reverse, that their God or their gods are the, are the true gods and the other ones are pretenders. All that I mean to say is Christianity is not uniquely intolerant. <laughs> Basically, all religions claim to be correct on their own terms. We have to evaluate them for what they are saying. But the second thing we learn here is that the people of God were not defeated because the other gods were stronger, because Dagon was stronger, but because they fell out of relationship with the one true God. See, we quickly learn in Ashdod, the Philistines didn't win because their God was stronger, but because God was teaching his people a hard lesson. The Philistines were a tool in the hands of Yahweh, but they did not control Yahweh. Israel was defeated because they had given up on worshiping the, uh, Yahweh, their God. They had decided to use him instead of honor him. I think it's easy to look around our world and feel like, well, the gods of this age are stronger than the Christian God. And depending on which spheres you run in and which kind of people you read, it can feel like uh, science is increasingly ascendant. That all of the God-free theories of science are convincing more and more people all the time to abandon faith. Yeah, who, who believes in a loving creator God anymore? It can seem, it can feel like the God of, of science or rationalism, scientific inquiry is winning. Or if you're in a different circle, it might feel like, oh, the God of pleasure is really winning in our world. More and more people all the time, it feels like, are being sucked into a life of, of self-pleasing, heeding a siren song of, of pornography or greed or simply a life that's focused on, on what I need. It can, it can feel like, it can seem like the God of pleasure is, is really winning. But I want to remind you that on that bloody day in Ebenezer, when 30,000 Israelites fell and the ark was captured, I bet it felt like Yahweh had been overthrown. If you had been there on the day, it would have seemed from all available evidence that God was on the run, that, that Dagon and, and, and his people were triumphing. 
Wouldn't you have thought as the ark was carted away from the battlefield and they put it in a pagan temple and they extinguished the torches and, and closed the doors, wouldn't it have felt like all hope had vanished? That the other gods had won? But it turns out that God doesn't need us to defend him. He can take care of himself. Sometimes for his own reasons, he lets other gods win battles and skirmishes. He lets himself take defeats. That doesn't make him not God. It just doesn't mean that the war is lost. The job of the people of God, the role we play, is to realize that even if other gods seem to be winning over here, seem to be winning over there, the move is not to abandon Yahweh, it's to cling to the true God. If pleasure or science or rationalism or whatever, if something else seems to be winning the day, it's not time to give up, it's time to return. It's time to double down on Yahweh. It's trying to, it, what Israel should have done when they lost the battle is to think, what needs to change in us? It's not God that's changing, it's us. But that's God among the gods. Let's talk about God among the Philistines. So we've talked about the battle going on inside the temple. There's concurrent action happening outside the temple as well. Verse 6, if you look, says that the hand of God is heavy against the people of Ashdod, that God terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, Ashdod and all the territory around. So the Ashdodites, they put their heads together and they're like, we have a great idea. Let's send the ark to Gath. Oh, won't the people in Gath love to have a turn with the ark? I bet they didn't tell Gath the whole story. We're like, oh, here you go. Here's, here's the ark. You don't have a turn in your temple. But so they send it to Gath and uh, things go even worse in Gath. General panic takes hold. Tumors break out. So the Gathians are like, we have an idea. Let's send it to Ekron. <laughs> but the Ekronites, they've heard enough stories. Messengers have gotten out and they're like, no way. Not, not bringing that into our town. And all the, the lords of the Philistines, all their leaders get together and they're like, we'll send the ark back. And that, that, if you come back next week, that's what we'll cover. But, but what in the world is going on here? Well, let's first talk about the tumors. Now, we don't read it here in this chapter, but in the next chapter, we find out that the tumors and the panic were also accompanied by a plague of mice or of rats. And then once you have, like, mice and rats and tumors and panic, it's like, it's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie is going on or whatever. There's, there's a lot of things happening. But the timeline in this passage, even if it's quite compressed, means these tumors, whatever they were, were very quick-growing. So it's not likely, like, a cancer or whatever. And additionally, if the tumors were visible on the outside of their bodies, you're, you know, notice that they noticed they were growing tumors, then, then it means a couple things. And so biologists who have read this and studied this, they, they're kind of in general agreement. The disease that best fits the description here and in chapter 6 is the bubonic plague. Now, you, you shouldn't Google this unless you want to be grossed out. I made that mistake this week. But the, but the bubonic plague, if you don't know, it's commonly carried in rats, spread by rats and mice, causes intense swelling and growths in the lymphatic system. So think, you know, uh, neck, armpits, groin area, whatever. And it can cause quick death. It was known in the ancient world. It's been around for thousands of years. It basically fits the description here. It checks a lot of boxes. Now, do we know it's the bubonic plague? No, it doesn't, doesn't say. But God uses ordinary means to accomplish his will. What happened in Ashdod and Gath, the land of, of Philistia, it was probably a disease we know about. So that covers why it happened, or that covers what happened. But why? What was God showing the Philistines? Well, he's showing them this, that it wasn't their strength that brought them victory. They didn't triumph over God. God allowed them to triumph for his own reasons. The Philistines are learning what the writer of Hebrews would later say. 
that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. They brought a living God into their cities and they are paying the consequences. They have not triumphed. God allowed them to win. And I want to spend a few minutes together thinking about the kind of God revealed in this passage. I think we've learned some important things about humanity. I think the character of God is the most important thing I want to sort of meditate, think on together. If God is king, then what kind of king is he? Four attributes of God that I want to point out from this chapter. The first is his transcendence. Now, theologians will sometimes talk about the difference between God's imminence and his transcendence, and I'll define that for you. Imminence sounds like the name Emmanuel. It means something similar. Imminence means God is close to us, that he draws near to people. And that's true, uh, but that's not what is being emphasized in this passage. Instead, God's transcendence, his otherness, his distance from us, the gap between him and humanity, that is being emphasized here. God does not need an Israelite army to protect him. Neither can a Philistine army harm him. God can do what God wants anywhere at any time. He's not a controllable God, not a tame God. Now, you may balk at some of what God does here, some of the methods. You're like, I don't like the tumors. I don't like the plagues. I don't like the tally of bodies from the previous week's battle. That's fine. I think that just emphasizes that God is not like us. Now, I've said this before at our church. I I don't know where I stole it from. Someone's smart. But if we are never offended, if we are never confused by God, then it's unlikely we know the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible isn't like us. He doesn't do what we would always do. There always remains, no matter how far you progress in the Christian faith, there always remains some mystery to God in his ways. He is himself. And if at times when you read the scriptures, you feel like, I'm uncomfortable, that's probably a right feeling. God is not a tiger in a cage that, you know, we go to the zoo and we observe him from the outside, you know, taking some notes about him. Rather, if God is a tiger, then you are walking in his jungle. He, he, he's, he's sort of, he's loose. The world is where he rules and we do not. God's transcendence is on display here. Second, a, a living God. So the Philistines get it into their heads that the God of Israel, oh, he's sort of like a, a God like Dagon. He, he lives in this box here that we stole, this ark. You know, maybe he can affect things a little bit, but mostly it's coincidence. But they quickly find out Yahweh is not a God like Dagon. The things that happen in Ashdod and Gath, they're unmistakable. They're like, oh, this God is at work in the world. This is a living God. We can't close the doors of our temple at night and sort of, you know, tuck God into his little, his little bed and like, he won't do anything. God is not containable. Yahweh's not containable like that. He's at work. He's doing things in the world. And sometimes this feels frustrating to, to us as modern believers. We want God to be more visible in our world. Maybe part of you would say, man, I wish I could point to something very obvious and concrete that God has done. Maybe if you're more of a doubting, cynical sort, you wonder, is it all just coincidence? Couldn't God be super obvious for once? I think it's important to remember the Philistines have a front row seat to the very obvious work of God, but what's their response? Well, they don't fall down at his feet and worship. They don't change the way they're living. They're not like, oh, Dagon, you're out. Yahweh, you're in. Their response is, how do we get this God out of here? How do do we get him away from us? His his actions, his activity in the world is bothering us. See, I think a lot of us are under the false assumption that if God were to do something very obvious and unmistakable in Canada, that all kinds of people would come to believe in him. 
But all over the Old Testament, God does really obvious stuff and people either shrug or they try to get him away. And then when Jesus shows up, some people are like, oh yeah, I'm convinced by this works, you know, but they hear his teaching and they're like, eh, not for me. We like to think it would be so great if God would just be obvious. But honestly, the track record of humanity responding to an obvious God isn't that great. Oh, and by the way, the track record of church people responding well to an obvious God isn't that great either. (laughs) He did all kinds of things for Israel. They didn't always respond the best way. If you're wondering, why doesn't God do some really obvious things in my life? I would just say, look, maybe don't be too eager. If the Philistines are any guide, we might be more interested in pushing God away from us than moving toward him. But we also ought not forget that in God's hiddenness in our world today, it does not mean he's not active. He's just simply less obvious. He's harder to see, but the same God who knocked Dagon down is still the God we have today. Okay, third, a powerful God. Think of all the things attributed to God's power in this story. He's credited with knocking down and rearranging an idol, not once, but twice. He's responsible for cutting off the head and hands of an idol, seemingly without tools. He's responsible for affecting the psychological, mental state of entire cities. You know, fear and panic and all that. He's responsible for the movement of pests, you know, rats and mice. And he's responsible for this virus or sickness or whatever that's affecting multiple cities. In in not very many verses, God is uh, attributed with control over physical objects, pagan deities, psychology of entire cities, control of animals, and control of a non-animal living thing like a virus or bacteria or whatever it was. It's an astonishing variety. I think it's easy to forget that God's powerful. Again, because he's working in these background ways, we think, well, his work is mainly confined to the spiritual sphere, isn't it? Maybe God just kind of controls the spiritual elements of our lives, but we kind of put up a little fence around what God controls, and if we do that, we actually do a disservice to him. Now, does God control your jump shot, you know, when you play basketball, or does God control the roll of the dice when you're, you're playing settlers or whatever? Like, yes, but God seems mostly content to let the laws of of physics and motion do their thing. All I'm trying to remind you of is that not to confine God to a tiny little, you know, backyard of activity, but to remember all the places God can act. And that's the fourth thing I want to talk about, is a God for the whole world. Now, as modern people, we're we're quite aware of the wideness of the world. I know many of you have traveled to to some, some various corner of the planet. But ancient gods or ancient peoples mainly conceived of gods as being very territorial, very geographic. There's sort of like this funny story in 1 Kings and the Arameans, this other people, come to fight against Israel. And the first time they fight against Israel, it's in some hilly country. And the Israelites win. So the Arameans are like, oh, Israel's god must be a, spe- a specialist in, in hill country, hill battles. So they're like, let's fight them again, but we'll fight them on the plains this time. Great idea. And then... Uh, Israel wins again, the Arameans lose, because Yahweh is not a God of hills or plains. He's not only a God in Ephraim and Shiloh, he's a God of the world. Operating in Philistia, operating in the house of Dagon, not stressful to him. He's not bound by the borders of Israel. He can work in Canada as easily as he can work along the banks of the Jordan River. And I say that because in some parts of our world, it feels like God's power is bumping up against or has even been defeated by hostile governments or restrictive laws or other religions. I just want to remind you, God rules over the whole world. He can work in Saudi Arabia or the UAE. 
Indonesia, Uruguay, whatever, Ottawa. He is a God of everywhere. But finally, if we kind of stitch this picture together of this transcendent, living, powerful, omnipotent, you know, omnipresent God, what we can be left with is a feeling of profound smallness. He's like, man, this God needs nothing. He can't be cajoled or persuaded or forced to do anything. He, he can't be controlled. Listen, part of that feeling of smallness, it's good and it's right because it reminds us of our place. It humbles us. It lowers us. But I'll remind you of something else. That the storyline of the scriptures is this. The God of all things, who needs nothing, who created everything, he does not need us. But yet he loves us. A God who can command viruses has become as we are, exposed himself to those same viruses that he might show his love and devotion to us. I don't think you have to look too far into the story to find yourselves. I mean, just tell me if this sounds familiar. There was once a people living under the curse of sin, lost and clueless. They think they are rich. They think they are prosperous. They think they are successful. They need nothing. They aren't looking for our salvation. They aren't interested in God. They have false idols they're busy bowing down to in their temples. And so God sends himself into their land. That's the story we read here. But doesn't that sound like the story of the entire scriptures? Where God sends himself to people who have no interest in him? Now, to the Philistines, of course, God comes in judgment, but in Jesus Christ, God sends himself with salvation. To a foreign people who did nothing to deserve or to earn his love, God comes with mercy. The God who could have done anything he wanted chose to set his love on us. And he chose to die for all of our false worship, all of our hollow pride, all of our Philistineness, that we might become his special people set aside to live in our kingdom. Listen, where do we find ourselves in this story? We recognize God has come into our land, God has saved us from our idols, and God has died to save us. May he give us ears to hear. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for these old stories which remind us of truths that are extremely applicable now for who you are and who we are. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to believe. In Christ's name, amen.